So you can, if you want to see that all again, uh, just go on YouTube, put in Read Scripture, right? Read Scripture, Ruth. There's a whole series of them. And I thought it's... I'm, amen. Let's conclude. <laughs> Let's go and get cake. <laughs> One sermon. How to get a sermon into seven minutes. Excellent, excellent points are there. There's just one thing that probably is worth pointing out, that actually God is explicitly said to uh, reverse the famine in Israel. That's why uh, Naomi and uh, daughter-in-law start to make their way back to Israel. So that's chapter 1, verse 6. And then later on in chapter 4, it's actually God is mentioned specifically as enabling Ruth to conceive. Okay, just in case some of you are sitting there thinking, how many of you noticed that? Not many. Okay, um, just in case you go back and read it. And can I recommend that you just get it out and it literally, if I can read it out in 12 minutes uh, in your head, you'd probably be able to read it uh, you know, quicker. Um, just read it and read it and read it. It's been interesting really um, over the last, literally the last couple of weeks, if you've been following Pete's series uh, out of Nehemiah. Uh, also recommend Kim Carter's uh, talk this morning on Deuteronomy. And if you add in Ruth as well, uh, each of us independently came to these uh, chapters. We didn't discuss it. We didn't say which book are you going to preach on. Um, and each of us are trying to build on uh, the sort of theme of building for the future. How do we work together? How do we build together as a church, whether you're a morning person or an evening person, or you come here to our school, or you're somehow connected how is it you can position yourself to see God move through you individually, but also in us as a church? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Okay. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't deal with the mm-hmms here, okay? Right. We're a fully-fledged, evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal church. Amen? Well, you, you may have had bad experiences of any three of those, but, you know. And, uh, but we're taking all the best bits. Um, it's just occur- occurred to me, actually, that we, the last time I remember something like this happening was myself and Jim Hunter, who's one of our retired elders, and myself, all spontaneously were reading When Heaven Invades Earth by Bill Johnson. And look what happened after that. There's a thought, isn't it? So we've been, you know, in the school just this week, we had an amazing kind of launch of both of the evening school and the daytime school. How many people here are involved in either one of those? Okay, yeah. Do you feel that, that sense? We're talking about angels gathering again. You know, I don't know if they live out there, but um, they seem to spend a lot of time out there. And, uh, and curiously, actually, the uh, Sharon lady who cleans, does a wonderful job in cleaning this whole building, uh, just on Tuesday morning, she saw four blackbirds pecking on the side of the window down here. Now, you know, there was a time when that kind of phenomenon, I didn't know what to make of it. And then Bill Johnson told us about the Roadrunner, if you know that story. Um, haven't got time to tell it. You may need to go and listen to something he said about that. Uh, I had a divine encounter with a pheasant on one occasion. Uh, wouldn't leave me alone, just came up to me, walked around me. I walked, tried walking away from it. This was down at um, Scotney Castle. And uh, never happened before and it's never happened since. And God spoke to me, David, that's what it's like with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to you, he stays with you, and you, he'll always be with you. The only way that, in a sense, you won't be aware of his presence is if you move away from him. 
So we want to press in, many, some of the things that both Pete and Kim have been saying is, we want to press into the presence of God, you know, going with his presence, don't we? And, uh, and yet, you, you know, in, in this book of Ruth, it's a curious kind of situation that this book comes out of. If you've ever read the book of Judges, right, if you go to the end, if you can't read the whole thing, uh, just go to the end verse. In fact, you might want to find that in your Bible or your tablet or your, your phone. Um, the end verse of Judges is well known for s- summarizing the book. It says this, In those days, all the days that just been described, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, not all the books in the Bible are in chronological order, but chronologically, Ruth uh, follows, or has actually probably took place, during the time of the judges. In fact, the beginning of, if you turn over the page in the Bible, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, and so on, the story carries on. It was a, it was a difficult, difficult time, wasn't it? And so you read in the book of Judges of all kinds of things going wrong, really, really strange stories, the kind of things that wouldn't make it possibly even into the sun. Well, they probably would. But uh, you know, the concubine who's sliced up into parts and sent to different parts of, you know, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It's a difficult, difficult time. And though the people of Israel have gone into the promised land, you know, they haven't followed the instructions to not intermarry with other tribes um, you know, Elimelech here is, isn't it, or Naomi, sons Marlon and Kilion, they're an example, although they've actually left Israel, they've gone and actually married Moabites, which of course the law had actually prohibited. God is very good at redeeming situations, but that really shouldn't actually have occurred in the first place. And because intermarriage not only meant, you know, that they were mixing ethnically, but of course they were mixing up their worship of God, so there was a lot of false religion kind of creeping into their practices. And at the end of Judges, it's that that verse which it says, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. If you wanted to write one phrase over our society today, that would be it, wouldn't it? The whole issue of gender identity is all about people saying, I want to be this. I don't want to, you know, I'm a man, but I want to be a woman. I'm a boy, but I want to be a girl. I'm a girl, but I want to be a boy. I want to self-identify. And the last diagram I saw, there were 70 different options. Right? Not a binary option, not am I a male or a female, but all sorts of shades in between. In fact, some people who don't want to identify to be anything. Although they may opt for certain things at certain different times. Now it's, it's weird and it's strange, particularly if you're from my generation, you know, which some of you are, and, uh, and others younger and some is older. Um, it's strange, isn't it? But society has become just like it is in the time of judges, not just in the UK or Europe, but the Western world and probably other parts of the world as well. Everybody does what is right in their own eye, eye, uh, eyes. I want to self-identify as a Christian. Do you? You can try this. If anybody kind of says, well, I'm, you know, if they're identifying as something they don't think they actually are, um, then use the same, same language. Your identification, though, come, is a God identification, isn't it? 
God identified you and God has given you your identity. That's another a theme that we'll return to later. Well, that's, that's our setting. And as that video perfect, you know, beautifully set out, God looks into that and God is still at work in that situation. He hasn't abandoned his people, although they've abandoned him. He hasn't lost them, even though they may have lost him for a while. He is still on their case. And so he decides to take this obscure... I mean, they were obscure. They're now famous. I know, Ruth and Poes, Naomi. They're in the Bible. They've been there well over 3,000 years. But, of course, you know, dial back into their time. He's just a farmer. She's just a widow. She, they're both widows. Both dependent on, you know, gleaming from the harvest. That's why Naomi sends, you know, Ruth out to, to the fields. They're just ordinary people. But living quite extraordinary lives. Now, we've preached royal identity so much here. If I ask you, are you ordinary people, you're not going to put your hand up, are you? Just, just imagine that I haven't taught any of that for a moment. Okay? Most of us would accept that sense that we're ordinary people. Now, I know what comes next. No, we're not. No. Just, just hold, hold back your Christianity for a moment. There is a sense in which, you know, we are just kind of quite ordinary people. We can identify, therefore, with people like Boaz and Naomi and the other characters in the book and Ruth, you know, because at the moment in the story they're not famous. But because God is working through them, working his purposes out in them, they become quite extraordinary You qualify on both accounts, don't you? You're both ordinary in one sense. Walking down the street, people wouldn't know you from Adam. Well, they probably would because he wasn't dressed like you. But But you have become extraordinary. Why have you become extraordinary? Well, for the same reason that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi have become extraordinary because God is working out his divine purposes in your life. Even when you're not aware of it, he is at work behind the scenes. Is what theologians call God's providence. Providentially, he is at work. Now, here's a mystery which was kind of summed up very neatly with a little sort of banner line, wasn't it? You know, God is suddenly at work, you know, through human responsibility. All these characters in the story, they're entirely responsible for their actions. So Elimelech and Naomi, it wasn't a great idea to leave Israel. They were leaving the covenant people. And although they may have been disobedient, maybe the famine was a result of that disobedience, nonetheless, they put themselves out. And so when they hear that God is now providing for them, they kind of hightail back in. But in in the meantime, tragedy has happened, hasn't it? But you can see, and we've kind of, we'll jump, sort of backwards and forwards in the story, you can see, as the the video portrayed, that God is working out his purposes and his plans to do what? So that a nice young couple can have a baby? Well, I'm sure they are a nice young couple, and I'm sure they enjoyed having little Obed. Strange name, I know, but, um, you know, not in a Jewish frame. Any Obeds here, by the way? Anybody thinking of having children and calling him Obed? 
Uh, uh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> Somebody's having one, though, there. <laughs> Sorry, Gail. <laughs> I tell you, Ruth is far more risque than that, isn't it? Well, we'll get to that bit. We'll get to the risque bit. <laughs> but this is the big picture, isn't it? Here are these outwardly ordinary people who are caught up in the purposes of God. Obed is going to be the son of, uh, sorry, the father of Jesse, and Jesse is going to have date. Is it that? Is it? Yeah, that, that's the genealogy. There's a longer genealogy because it goes back to Abraham. And David is going to be one of the, perhaps along with Solomon, you know, the greatest king that Israel ever has. Not only because of the greatness of what he achieves in his lifetime, but actually the Messiah, the king of kings, is going to come from his line. It's amazing, isn't it? The genealogy of Jesus it involves Tamar, uh, Judah and Tamar, where Judah, you know, sleeps with his, is it his daughter-in-law, who's posing as a prostitute. And then Rahab is part of that, because Boaz, Rahab, who, the prostitute, there's lots of prostitutes in this story, you know, who uh, hangs out the, the red cord, you know, and you know the story in Joshua, uh, or Jericho, rather, uh, in Joshua, the book of Joshua. And, um, and these, these people are included in the genealogy of Jesus. Not by mistake, because God loves to redeem Every situation, doesn't he? He loves to take not only what we call ordinary people, but even sinful people, people with a past, people who have made mistakes, and redeem their lives and include them into the purposes of God. So that means that everyone here, whatever your past, whatever your mistakes, you are involved in the purposes of God. That's how he does it, isn't it? So if you came this morning, um, Dave Foggan in the worship this morning was just addressing the idea that somehow you would disqualify yourselves from being included in the purposes and love and plans of God. And I would say to you this evening, don't feel that way, because if people like, you know, the, the, the characters in this story can be involved in the purposes of God, then so can you. And you see, the king is still here. The kingdom of which we begin to see, begin to see the, the whispers, the plans for, if you like, the beginning of, or in fact, the story, of course, has already started well before we get to the book of Ruth. But it's actually continued through this book, throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You get the story of the kingdom of God that's just going to burst out in the ministry of Jesus and then burst out through his people, one generation after another, after another, and you are just on the cutting edge of God's plans and purposes. Can you do that? Just do that with your hands. I'm on the cutting edge. Okay? We use that phrase in the media, don't we? You know, just think of the doing disco stuff. Not that I've ever done it. But, uh, imagine walking into work on Monday. I love this because it's Sunday evening, isn't it? You know, I am on the cutting edge of God's plans. Really? Well, what are they? Ah. You are. You, God has one plan. You. And me. All of us. And I know we're part of a much bigger plan, but, you know, you're part of that plan, aren't you? So, so here's my question. I haven't got time to expound all of Ruth. Um, but I want us to bring some key things out of it. 
If God is working out his plans and his purposes, as he was in the book of Ruth, if he's still doing that, and you and I are on the cutting edge of what God is about, then what kind of people do we need to be in order to release God's kingdom? Simple question there. It's a question we're always asking ourselves here at Eastgate. What's my responsibility in this, and what can I learn from these characters which will help usher in the purposes of God? Because we are part of a divine mystery, aren't we? That although God is working behind the scenes, we have no idea of half. It's almost like we see a small part of the iceberg, and there's so much more underneath. And it keeps popping up in our lives every night, well, you know, on a continuous basis. We think, ah, that's why God did that. That's why God allowed that, in order that that would follow, which is more glorious. Even our sufferings, he's able to redeem and turn around. Well, you've got three characters, haven't you? Well, let's, let's look at the first one. Um, an unfortunate name, I, was, I love to be alliterative. <laughs> so we're going to look at negative Naomi. Now, if you're a great fan of Naomi, just hold, hold the uh, questions you've now got in your mind. Is she entirely negative? Well, there is this stage in her life, and you can f- totally understand it, can't you? She's lost her husband. I mean, th- there you are, in about the first five verses of Ruth, Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech, and then you know, sees both of her sons die as well, and she's left now with just her daughter-in-laws. It is a tragedy. And despite the fact that, you know, Ruth comes out with her wonderful declaration, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people, this is verse 16, and your God, my God, Naomi, when she returns to, to Bethlehem, to Israel, all she can say is this, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. That's not the end of the story of Naomi, but what's she doing here? Naomi, by the way, means pleasant. She's saying, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Call me Myra. Right? Nobody is ever going to call their child Myra after, after tonight. Are they? But, sorry, if you, anybody called No, you wouldn't be called that. What is she saying about herself? Now, you know, your heart goes out to her. She's been effectively like widowed three times, if that, you know, in, that, in, in that sense. Been bereaved three times. And although... Ruth has made this lovely declaration to her. She expressed her love and her loyalty. You know, it's going to last and, until forever. All she can, all she can, she doesn't actually comment on that, by the way, if you, if you read those chapters. When, when, Ruth said, um, when Ruth says these wonderful declarations, she says this. When Naomi, Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She did stop telling her to go back home, you know, and find a Moabite, Moabite husband. But actually, she's so caught up with her bitterness that that kind of overwhelms her. Now, what's the lesson we can draw from that? What's Naomi doing in this situation? She's letting who she is be defined by her past. 
And bitter and as tragic as it is, that's what we must avoid doing if we're going to see the purposes of God. Imagine if she had said, look, thanks for the offer, Ruth, but things are so bad, please go away. Just please go back, you know, you may be committed to me. So, you know, she was beginning to see a glimmer of hope. And to Naomi's eternal credit, of course, she then begins to see the possibilities. Once Ruth has gone into the fields and brought back the harvest, and she says, who did that for you? And Ruth tells her it's Boaz. She said, wow, he's our, he's one of our family Redeemers, our kinsmen redeemers. These people have a special responsibility towards us. She begins to see hope. But where are you with your sense of identity? And where do you get your sense of identity from? In the introductory remarks, I was, you know, saying to you, your identity, you, you, you get your identity clearly from God, don't you? And God is above your circumstances. God understands your circumstances, and yet he still speaks into your identity. He calls you holy. He calls you blameless. He calls you a saint. And that doesn't change, doesn't it? However I feel, and however I may be responding to the circumstances around me, my identity has been formed in me by the death and resurrection of, the Holy, of, of, of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into my heart where he cries, Abba, Father, you are my son, you are my daughter. Now, Naomi doesn't have the benefit of that revelation, so in one sense you can understand how she feels this way, although she's amazing because when she sees redemption on the horizon, she grasps it with all her hearts and literally pushes her daughter-in-law in the, the right direction. But if you are to be a, a person, if we're to be a people who are going to see the purposes of God worked in our lives, we need to be clear who we are and how we got to be who we are. The world is crying out, this gender dysphoria it's called, you know, this, sent, this inability to discover who you are is crying out for people like you and me to know who we are. To both know our God and know our identity. And if you're not convinced now, then read a book called World Identity by my brother's brother, David Webster. You really have to settle it in your own heart, isn't it? Unless you really know, indeed, I mean, this is true whether it's the 21st century or not, but, you know, but particularly in the 21st century when, you know, to quote W.B. Yeats, who I've never quoted before in my life, no, I did during the week, but, you know, this week, before this week, I'd never quoted Yeats. You know, he's got this wonderful poem that he wrote in 1920 called The Second Coming, interestingly enough. And one of his lines is then, all things fall apart. If you wanted to characterize the world that we live in, is, you know, yes, everybody's doing what they believe is right in their own eyes, but everything as that we have known, our traditional beliefs, our traditional culture, much of which reflects the Bible and, you know, the, the, the investment that God has made in the UK and in other places, it's falling apart. You see, when you stop believing in God, as Gilbert Keith Chesterton said, you, it's not that you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. Anything goes. 
So it shouldn't shock us. Well, you know, I know it does shock us. It shouldn't surprise us that people don't know who they are and they're choosing from a whole panorama of different choices. Why? Because everything's falling apart. Without sounding, you know, we're not ones for being pessimistic in this church, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> You're so concentrating. Is this the right? Oh, yes, this is the right response. <laughs> we are no, you know, we are making a habit of celebrating good news, but uh, you know, and being positive, and we want that to we want that to be projecting the world because God's kingdom is a positive place. But folks, there's a world out there that is far from positive. Yes, it is lost. Yes, it is dead in its sin. Yes, it has moved away from God. And in moving away from God, most of the tragedy, if not all the tragedy of our present day society, is as a result of that. But the genius of that situation is that you and I, knowing God and knowing who we are, can turn it around. Just as you see redemption in the story of uh, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, so we can, as ordinary people with an extraordinary God, can turn it around and release his presence. And you will release his presence more and more so when you truly know who you are. You are a royal people with a royal commission to bring, you have been given the keys of the kingdom to release his healing, his forgiveness, his provision, is justice wherever you go. Great, isn't it? Should we say amen? Amen. amen. So actually Naomi isn't all that negative. She is for a season, and you may have been through similar seasons in your life. Most, most people have at some point. But the genius for you and I is those circumstances don't determine who we are inside. Because who we are inside has been transformed. Then, of course, you've got radical... Ruth, negative Naomi, but radical Ruth. I love this bit, don't you? But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's verse 16 and 17 in the first chapter again. Ruth is a Moabite. She doesn't really know this stuff. I assume Naomi and Marlon and Killian, the, 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 the now deceased husbands, must have introduced her to this, although we're not told. I just assume that's probably the case over that 10-year period, you know, when they were in, in Moab. But it doesn't matter, in a sense, it doesn't matter where she's come from. She has grasped a key thing about how you, re- you are released, how you release the purposes of God and are released in those purposes yourself. You could sum it up just as, uh, what do I mean by radical Ruth? She has a radical relationship with God. She has a radical relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then works out that relationship, of course, in her marriage to uh, Boaz. And you get that rather peculiar proposal that she makes to her, which we'll try and make a little bit of sense of as we go along, (laughs) if we can. Here's four things I believe that you could sum up. It'll begin with L. I told you I was into alliteration. We've just gone from R's to L's. Um, Four ways that I believe you can sum up what 
Ruth has just expressed in those verses. So a covenant star relationship has location, it has love, it has loyalty, and it has longevity. It's not bad, is it? Or it lasts. <laughs> if you want a shorter word than longevity, or if you don't know what, let me just know. Um, it's got to be in a place, isn't it? I mean, I know that sounds rather obvious, but, you know, the way we work out relationships is not by flitting here, there, and everywhere. It's about being with people. So being in a church community or being with friends or being with the people you're committed to. At Eastgate, that's about being committed here to the people and to the vision of the church. So there's a location element about it. You can't kind of spread yourself around so thin that you're never really committed to anything in the purposes of God. It's about love, isn't it? Very clearly is Ruth expressing her love towards Naomi, and she's going to express a similar love to to Boaz later. It's about loyalty. That came out very clearly, you know, in the video, isn't it? She is utterly loyal. Every every sort of good character in this story has a kind of opposite number. So Orpah, bless her, she decides to go back, even though initially she said, I'll stay with you. Given the choice again, she kind of, no, well, maybe I won't. Maybe... Maybe I won't risk it. Maybe I won't get a husband. I'll go back to Moab. At least I know those people. Somebody will be able to look after me. She doesn't take the risk of relationship. And there's always a risk in relationship, isn't there? Right, just say with me, there's always a risk in relationship. So the next time you're up for a relationship, whatever that may be, friendship, marriage, church life, there is a risk. There's a risk that you might get hurt. There's a risk that, you know, you put your eggs in that basket and, uh, well, who knows what might happen. Don't want to be pessimistic. <laughs> but let's be real, there is a risk around it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a step of faith, would it? And faith is required in any relationship. That's what makes Ruth's radical step here so radical. You know, incredible. I mean, when's the last time you said this to somebody? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be so severely, if anything, but death separates you and me. Who said that? Or words to that effect when they got married? I did. My wife's not putting her hand up at the moment. That's a bit worrying. (laughs) You can sort me out when we get home. <laughs> the kind of relation, the quality. Now, you know, there are problems around this when you get to church life, isn't there? So, you know, if you know anything, the history of the heavy shepherding movement, even if you don't know anything about it, the very words heavy shepherding have a kind of feel about them, you'll get the gist of what that means, won't you? You know, leaders who kind of dictate to you things in your life, rather than what we are aiming to do here, which is to create a, a group of People are experiencing freedom in Christ and are free to relate to one another. And that doesn't, in fact, that has the potential for being more powerful, much more powerful, than an autocratic, dictator-type relationship that heavy shepherding, heavy shepherding seemed to be about. One of the first apostles in my life sort of joked about how, right, now you're committed to us, I'll come round and choose your wallpaper. Right, if any of you go back that far, no, he was joking. 
<laughs> but there was, there was something around that. Now, what happened in church very often is when you get something that's abused, there's a kind of reaction to it, and people say, oh, I'm never going to give myself to anything like that again. And part of me can understand that. But actually, commitment to one another on a heart level... Now, notice, too, that you know what Ruth says to um, Naomi... It's not full of rules and regulations, is it? Like what sort of wallpaper you're going to have, you know, and where you can go, what films you can watch, and so on and so forth. That's, that's not the, you know, that's not freedom, is it? Freedom and heart relationship is what it says. It's our heart relationship. But nonetheless, there's this, this, this great commitment to the purposes of God and, and to one another. So I, some years ago, read, uh, Chris Vallotton's book, you know, Supernatural Ways of Royalty. How many people have read that? Do you remember the bit in the book where Chris writes to Bill Johnson, uh, just committing himself, and to paraphrase what he said, he says, you know, Bill, I am going to, you know, unless God calls me somewhere else, I am going to be committed to you, your vision, your heart, you have my mind, my resources, everything. I am with you, heart and soul. He tells this rather funny story that he kind of, told Bill in the car when they were driving on a ministry trip and he comes out with this great gushing declaration and Bill says, thanks. <laughs> Carries on driving. Now you have to understand, it's not that he didn't mean that, but you know, Bill's quite an introverted character which Chris goes on to explain. I was so inspired by that that I write my own letter to Pete saying essentially the same things. If we had time, I'd have read it, read it out to you. But basically saying, Pete, I am with you, I am for you. This was probably about nine or ten years ago now. And unless God calls me somewhere else, I'm, I'm here and we are going to pursue God together. Now, Pete and I talked about that letter recently and it's not that the content of it would change in any degree except this. I think when we look back into those times, we realise we were... Well, we're in a kind of culture that was quite a, a hierarchical culture. Pete would have been seen as the senior, and would have called himself even possibly, you know, the senior pastor. So there was all that, that sense that Pete was kind of on the top of the pile and we were all kind of serving him. Since then, we have very much moved towards a kind of mutual submission form of leadership, which we feel is kind of much more healthier, really. And so I would, if I was writing that letter today, I couldn't write it to Pete I'd have to write it to all the directors. In fact, more than that, I would write it to the whole church. See where I'm going. In other words, it's not like the leaders are up here and everybody's down to here either. In fact, if anything, it's the other way, other way around. That the leadership is there to serve you. But actually, better even than that, we are here to serve one another. And you see, if you want to release the purposes of God here in this church, in this community or whichever community you come from, then being committed relationally to people here is an important deal. doesn't mean that anybody can tell you what to do. They may encourage you. They may exhort you. We're we're kind of used to that. There may be need uh, things, ministry opportunities we'd love you to get involved with. But you have the freedom... To decide what to do. You don't have to give to the church. You have the freedom not to. In fact, the freedom not to 
is really powerful because then you have the freedom to do. And you're actually doing it because it's coming from in your heart. That's what we mean by a free people, isn't it? So Ruth freely gives herself to Naomi. So those are, you know, all I can do is give you a flavor of this because it's almost like now, now you need to go and work it out yourself. Well, what does that, so I, I would encourage you, well, Lord, I want to be committed to a group of people, to their vision, to their heart. What does that look like in my life? I'd rather he told you than anybody else told you, to be quite honest. Although you might examine the opportunities to serve in the church or, you know, serve in the world, because Eastgate isn't, as you know, it's very much about, to say, throwing you out, um, <laughs> sending you out into the world to take the kingdom of God into the world. So some of you will spend more time in the church, some of you will spend less time in the church, and so on and so forth. All of your lives are different. You have to work that out between you and God. But this heart relationship is is what we're aiming for, because God will release his purposes through that. And then very briefly, we'll look at Boaz. Bountiful Boaz. Negative Naomi and radical Ruth, now we've got bountiful Boaz. Isn't he a great character? I think you could sum, I mean, I've called him bountiful, because he's just so generous, isn't he? God loves to work through generous people. So here, as soon as he spots, you know, Ruth, he's saying, you know, tells his workers, A, to protect her and look after her, not treat her roughly, but make sure she gets more than she's actually trying to gather. Now, that rather strange kind of, you know, uncover his feet episode, right? It's actually quite sexually provocative in their society for the woman to, Naomi's, when Naomi says, you know, put a change of clothes and put perfume on. It's not just she's out for an interesting night. Well, she's out for an interesting night. <laughs> it's actually to make herself attractive, sexually attractive. It's kind of straightforward as that. Lay down at his feet and uncover his feet. You know, his feet. Oh, what's going on? She, you see, culturally, it wasn't right for her to make a proposal of marriage, but she is basically saying, come and get me. That's funnier than that. You know. <laughs> she was making herself available, saying, I'm here. Now, look at the way he responds. You know, if you were, if a modern filmmaker was making that today, I mean, he'd have a heyday, wouldn't he? Because modern filmmakers don't understand virtue and holiness and how being bold about relationships can go hand in hand you know, with with virtue and holiness. So here's, here's Ruth, who can be both humble and bold at the same time. Haven't got time to dwell on it, but that's the key to your life. How to be humble and yet bold at the same time. There's nothing mealy-mouthed about Ruth's humility. She is willing to lay at the feet for most of the night, you know, to a man she's not married to in the hope that he will see her and want her, and then out of their marriage, the whole redemption of the, you know, Naomi's family will take place. So the stakes are pretty high, aren't they? Both for her, and then Boaz, in his righteousness, recognises, he doesn't look at her and think, wow, I don't want to jump into bed with her, which is your modern filmmaker's edition. But here's a noble woman. He, He uses that description that's used of, 
you know, the wife in, the, in Proverbs 31. And she has done a noble thing. She has done a bold thing. And he honors her for that. And obviously something's going inside his heart, but he still, then he realizes he can't necessarily have her because he's not the first in line. He is willing, however, to do the right thing to offer her and the, the opportunity of redemption to the kinsman who's nearer to Naomi. So before all the church, church elders, all the community elders, <laughs> that's the heavy shepherding, no, all the community elders, he, 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 he puts the deal out there, doesn't he? You know, that cartoon thing was right. It was done publicly. And, he, and, and it's a kind of, he's kind of quite, um, he's also kind of clever about it, isn't it? Because the guy can't sort of say that he didn't make the offer. So he says, you know, I must offer you the opportunity to redeem Naomi and his family. And the guy says, yes, fantastic. Look at all that land that I'm about to hear. Oh, by the way, you've got to marry Ruth. Ah, okay. Well, the deal's off. I don't know why, but you didn't see him, Ruth. And anyway, um, the Bible doesn't tell you that bit. And uh, so Boaz is prepared in his generosity to lose everything in order to gain everything. Where have you heard that before? What does Jesus say about us? Are you willing to lose everything in order to gain everything? Are you willing to lose your life in order to gain your life? So Boaz is an example for us because he's willing to trust and obey. He's willing to do the right thing, even at the possible cost of losing everything. And God's calling you and me to be radically generous in the same way, radically bountiful in the same way. And that generosity can be expressed as it is in the life of Boaz, in material possession, in doing what is virtuous and right, and trusting God for the outcome. Because you will be put in situations, whether it's in the workplace or in church life or wherever you are, where you basically have to do the right thing, even if it is against, apparently, your interests. But time and time again, you will discover, as you act in faith you know, and obedience, that God will redeem the situation. And so God redeems the situation for Boaz and for Ruth. They have a child, and from that child comes to the king, and from that king comes the king of kings. So, know who you are, be radical in your relationships, and be bountiful and generous, trust and obey, because there's no other way just like Boaz. Amen? Amen. Amen.